Just like podcasts, newsletters are a great way to learn more about history. So that's why I created the History Weekly Newsletter. To round up all the best history podcasts of the week, I break them down just for you. And as a little bonus, I outline a major historical event that occurred each day that week in history, along with pictures, of course. Consisting of four sections, I first list those major historical events, then I list all the history podcasts that I listened to that week with their cover arts and links, rank the three best episodes, and finish with a guest recommendation. So if you're looking for a new newsletter to follow and learn even more history, follow the link in the show notes or enter your email at historyweekly.eo.page slash landing. And now, to the show. It's April 23rd, 1893, in Aberdeen, Scotland. The skies are cloudy, and there's a light rain that's been off and on throughout the day. But despite the gloom and the weather, there's excitement in the air. Extra, extra, read all about it. The Aberdeen Press has just begun circulating the day's edition, and a local man picks it up and reads it to himself out loud. Lynch Law in the United States Miss Ida B. Wells, an American Negro lady, will deliver an address on this subject on Monday evening in the ballroom at Music Hall. She will be supported by Miss Impey, member of the Society of Friends, Professor Ivorock, Reverend James Henderson of Constantinople, and others. The chair will be taken at 8 o'clock by Mrs. Isabel 5E Mayo. All are cordially invited. As he continues walking through the town square, he notices the surprised looks on others' faces when they read the same paper. They all seem very curious and interested to see who this Ida Wells is and hear her speak. Little did they know, she would be just as impassioned to see them, for she needed their help. Though this would be a foreign and strange land to Ida, she would make some of her most loyal and fervent political allies in the Brits, Scots, and Irish that she met. A lifelong friendship that began when she arrived on the shores of Liverpool, England on April 13th, 1893. This is the life of Ida B. Wells, and you're listening to To Be a Rebel. This is To Be a Rebel the podcast that takes you through the lives of real rebels throughout history that have defied unjust authority and stood up for themselves and their beliefs, at times costing them their lives or their reputations, and sometimes both. This is the second of a three-part series on Ida B. Wells, the civil rights activist and anti-lynching crusader who helped bring awareness to and resistance against the lynching of black folks. This episode will focus on the formative events of her activism and the impact she had up until her death in 1931. Next week, we'll look at her last days and the legacy that she left behind. If you haven't checked out part one yet, I'd recommend doing so now to familiarize yourself with the chain of events. After Ida secured her teaching job at Safran Street School in Memphis, it didn't take long for her to notice the inequalities plaguing the school system there. The buildings assigned for black teachers and students were extremely subpar compared to that of the white schools. And being the outspoken woman that she was, she was eventually expelled in 1891 for her criticisms. Though it stung at first and felt like a setback, it allowed her to focus on journalism 
and harness her riding abilities. As her siblings got older, they were able to look after themselves and a couple went with her aunt to move out west. So that same year, she began writing for the newspaper known as the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight. Originally founded as the Memphis Free Speech by Reverend Taylor Nightingale in 1881, he merged with J.L. Fleming in 1888 to form the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight. The addition in the name paid homage to the Marion Headlight that Fleming wrote far back in Crittenden, Arkansas, before being ran out by a white mob. Based out of the Beale Street Baptist Church, they reached out to Ida a couple years later to request that she write for them. And with that, Ida set to work on reporting the city's news and for the black community at large. Ida had a reputation of holding nothing back, but it reached a boiling point just a year after starting in May 1992. Two months before this in March, Ida reported on the lynchings of three prominent black businessmen that ran a successful grocery store in Memphis. The whole ordeal was a terrible, sad situation. Hey Ida, I've seen some of your articles in other papers. Great work. We'd really like to have you here at the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight. Well, you know I do appreciate your paper, but I'd have to be an equal partner if I were to come on. I certainly understand that. Let me talk to my partner and see what we can do. Okay, well, let me know then. I'm open to this, but just need to be worth my time now. We'll be in touch, Mrs. Wells. It's Miss. Die now. Oh, yes, right. A couple of weeks go by, and Ida receives correspondence from the two partners. Miss Ida Wells, we're delighted to offer you a one-third stake in the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight effectively making us all one-third partners. Please come down to the church to discuss further details. She gets down to the church and they hash out the details of the deal. Hey, Ida. Hey. Hey. Really excited for the impact we can make with this thing. Let's get to work, shall we? So we're thinking that you'd be the editor. Nightingale here will be the sales manager and I'll handle the business side of things. Allows us to play to all of our strengths. The terms of the deal are the same as what was written, one-third each. What do you say? Well, it sounds good so far. Just to be sure, I have full editorial control, right? That's right. You handle all the editing. Whatever you want to go out is what goes out. Well, all right then. Let's do this. And with that, Ida set to work on reporting the city's news and for the black community at large. Ida had a reputation of holding nothing back but it reached a boiling point just a year after starting in May 1992. Two months before this in March, Ida reported on the lynchings of three prominent black businessmen that ran a successful grocery store in Memphis. The whole ordeal was a terrible, sad situation. As Memphis rebuilt after the yellow fever and began expanding, their grocery wholesale market boomed and a black man by the name of Thomas Moss decided to take advantage. Starting the People's Grocery, he had immense success due to the size of the market, but it didn't go unnoticed by other white businessmen in the area. They constantly had it out for him, but it all came to a boiling point starting on March 2nd. It's a dreary Wednesday afternoon in Memphis, Tennessee. A group of local black kids and white kids are playing marbles in a yard near the People's Grocery store. Suddenly, a dispute breaks out between a black boy and a white boy. 
Hey, that's no fair. You cheated. <laughs> How? You didn't stay inside the circle. I saw you. Um, no. Someone here would have said something. We both got buddies here. No, you're lying. I won. Hand over the marbles to me. Are you calling me a liar? Yeah, I am. The black boys made quick work of the white ones, but the scuffle was overseen by one of the white boy's parents. He comes over and puts his own hands on the black youth, trying to avenge his son, but other black folks in the area see this as well. Soon, a hodgepodge of black and white folks nearby join in, and in the ensuing fight, one of the other local grocery owners, a white man by the name of William Barrett, claims that one of the people's grocery store owners, William Stewart, attacked him. With local law enforcement on his side, Barrett enters the people's grocery the next day with a police officer looking for William Stewart. Alright, McDowell, we know that your buddy Stewart is in there. We have a warrant for him. I can promise you he's not. He had a family matter to attend to. Let me show you his office. Barrett sees that Stewart is indeed gone for the day, so he decides to attack McDowell, not wanting to wait any longer to resolve the matter. He goes to pistol whip him with his revolver, but you know what, I ain't leaving. But he wrestles it out of his hand and it falls to the floor. McDowell, speedy and quick as he is, picks it up and shoots back at Barrett as he and the officer flee the store. Striking Barrett. Run! They begin retreating out of the store, fearing for their lives. Later, Mr. McDowell is apprehended but then released on bail. Meanwhile, William Barrett rushes to find the local judge, Julius DuBose. Yeah, your honor, the blacks of this town held a secret meeting to conspire against the good white folks we got here. I've got it on good record. Oh, well, okay then, we can't have that. Assemble a posse and get rid of those rowdy scoundrels. By this time, the black residents and other patrons of the People's Grocery know that a white mob is coming for them. The Tennessee Rifles, a local black militia, prepared by arming other local black residents and assembling a crew of their own to guard the store. At about 10 p.m., the judge's posse reaches the back of the store and the militia open fire on them, knowing exactly what they're there for. After some back and forth, the whites begin evacuating some of their injured while more reinforcements come in. They eventually overrun the security at People's Grocery and begin terrorizing them along with nearby black residents. When all was said and done, Ida claimed that more than 100 black folks had been stripped from their homes and jailed that night, including Stewart and Moss. While they were jailed, the sheriff declared that their punishment would not be decided until the fate of the other deputies was known. Once it was confirmed that they would survive, the Tennessee Rifles breathed a sigh of relief thinking they wouldn't need to guard the jail cell anymore. But on March 9th, in the wee hours of the night, a group of 75 white men stormed the jail cell and took the three grocery store owners hostage. 
What they did next was absolutely horrifying. They shot them to death before mutilating and burning the bodies. A private execution done for public reasons. The next day, Judge DuBose ordered confiscation of weapons from the Tennessee Rifles. And rather than put up a fight, they surrendered, not wanting any more violence. Without anyone to run the store, predators came a-knocking and the people's grocery store went bankrupt. The rest of the remaining stock is sold off and black residents are forced to shop at a white-owned grocery store nearby. Rather than learn from the incident at the people's grocery, the town leans into its hatred even more. On May 21st, Ida publishes an editorial refuting the age-old myth that black men have a tendency to sexually assault white women. She posits that in addition to it being an outright lie, it would imply something about the character and morals of white women. One thing that Ida often pointed to was the extrajudicial dynamic involved in it. Even for the legitimate cases of assault, the accused is still to be innocent until proven guilty, not killed by an enraged mob that doesn't yet know all the facts. White mobs breaking into jails with the intent of taking justice into their own hands was common during this time, and the extent to which they'd go was horrendous. Many lynchings were public events at which many professed Christians even attended. So obviously, this editorial struck a nerve with a certain sect of the population. It's six days later, on May 27, 1892. A white mob descends upon the newspaper's office, destroying the building and its contents. Though little evidence or consequence comes of it, Ida knows what this is about. In her own words, recovered from her journal reflecting on that terrible day. I thought then it was the white Southern receiver's defense of his womanhood which caused the mob to destroy my paper, even though it was known that the truth had been spoken. I know now that it was an excuse to do what they had wanted to do before, but had not dared because they had no good reason until the appearance of that famous editorial. After a brief brush with the mobs herself, Ida realized even more the importance of organizing and building alliances. She worked with many of the black and white church leaderships to bring awareness to lynching and support more generally to the black community at large. Though she did brush shoulders with some, she was being noticed by all. A famous British Quaker activist by the name of Catherine Impey had been traveling to the U.S. throughout the early 90s. She happened to stumble upon a convention at which Ida spoke. It was impassioned by not only her speaking abilities, but her cause as well. So in 1893, she invites Ida over to the U.K. to speak on the lynching issues and enlist more help. Though she wasn't sure what to expect arriving in a foreign land, she would make some of her most loyal and fervent allies abroad, ultimately expanding her impact even further to their passionate lobbying efforts. After coming back ashore, Ida felt re-energized in her efforts to bring an end to lynching. An anti-lynching committee had been established to lobby influential clergymen and remind them what good Christians stand for. Soon, Ida began receiving better treatment from them, and they actually began lending their ears to her as well. More papers would follow in suit. That same year, the World's Fair held exhibition in Chicago 
and Ida did some formal networking that would yield her founding positions of several prominent organizations, including the NAACP. After a second follow-up trip to the UK the following year in 1894, she would return to live in Chicago and attempt to make an impact there just as she did in Memphis and Holly Springs. It was also there in Chicago where she'd met her husband and father of her four children, Ferdinand Barnett. She was well ahead of her times in many respects, including the hyphenated use of their last names. Him being a lawyer, they often crossed paths and she at times recruited his services to help the young men of Chicago during their time of need. There would continue to be a large need for young black men to get professional help such as housing and jobs. The city and even local charities would continually fail to do their part in helping mitigate it. Ida had always lived a busy life, doing her utmost to help those in need when they thought that no one else was there. She began writing an autobiography later in her life, but wasn't able to finish it and actually stopped mid-sentence. One of her later granddaughters, Michelle Duster, would help edit this and add a prologue, which became widely distributed, known as Crusade for Justice. A very fitting title for her roller coaster of a life. Ida achieved many accomplishments throughout her lifetime, establishing the first black kindergarten, organizing black women, and helping the city of Chicago elect its first black alderman, just to name a few. The work she did paved the way for generations of black politicians, activists, and community leaders. When we think about all that she went through on her crusade for justice, it's hard to always know exactly what was going through her head and what kept her going. From her own words recorded in her journal, I felt that one had better die fighting against injustice than to die like a dog or right in a trap. I had already determined to sell my life as dearly as possible for tag. I felt if I could take one lyncher with me, this would even up the score, even a little bit. Thanks for listening to To Be a Rebel. This has been part two in our three-part series on Ida B. Wells, the civil rights activist and anti-lynching crusader who helped bring awareness to and resistance against the lynching of black folks. This episode focused on the formative events of her activism and the impact she had up until her death in 1931. Next week, we'll look at her last days and the legacy that she left behind. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you told your friends and family about it and gave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on all our new episodes covering all of history's rebels. Have an idea for a rebel you'd like to see covered? Email me, david, at echofox.media to have it considered. A quick note on dramatizations. We can't always know exactly what was said, but these depictions are based on historical research. Hosting and production is done by me, David Los. Editing and sound design by Brianna Rees. Historical research for this episode was also compiled by me, David Los. Links to all of our sources used and resources for further reading can be found in the show notes along with community and partner notes. We hope that you'll support them knowing that doing so supports us. We'll see you next week and until then, take care.
Well, howdy there, 2B Rebel fans. I know how much you all love your history, so I thought I'd tell you about another show that I myself enjoy called The Wild West Extravaganza. The host, Josh, he has a real knack and great voice for storytelling. He explores all the rowdy characters, crazy battles, and major events from the American history period known as the Wild Wild West. So that includes Native American tribes and chiefs, cowboys, outlaws, bandits, sheriffs, you name it, he covers it all. And don't worry, they feature plenty of rebels too. And just like me, Josh strives to be as historically accurate as possible, and he's built a large community to hold him accountable to that. So if you want to learn more about this fascinating part of American history, search for the Wild West Extravaganza wherever you're listening right now, or hit the link in the show notes.